listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. And welcome listeners. My name's Carl Fitzgerald here each and every week broadcasting a red hot burning light on the easy money rent seekers get to make in their sleep. And my oh my, what an absolute media snowstorm it has been uh, for about the last 10 days. We had the the UN report into the financialization of housing and then uh, the 1% vacancy tax by the Andrews uh, government has had us uh, churning away on the media. Uh, Catherine Cashmore, our president, has been on uh, ABC Drive Time with Raf Epstein on SBS News on Saturday night. I was quoted page three in the Financial Review and uh, a whole screed of articles quoting our uh, vacancy report. So, uh, yes, in an era of uh, never-ending housing price pressures, never-ending rental price pressures, we must question why our tax system prioritises those to make easy money out of the value of location, location. And as always, we remind you that it's the vibrancy of our community the very existence itself that creates this value if nobody lived in the city of melbourne land prices would plummet as soon as we all came back of course up would go the rents and our question for listeners as always is who deserves a share of those spoils under neoclassical slash neoliberal economics those rents have been privatised by the 0.01%. Everyone's in on it now. More and more first home investors are seeing it as the only way to enter the market. And rents just continue to skyrocket as the gig economy and the casualization of the workforce also expands week after week. I, I was uh, struck by this, this real estate spruik this week. Top six reasons to invest in Bay Life with your $29,900. Number one, less than 1% rental vacancy indicates underlying economic strength. Two, employment is strong with more new jobs being created than either Brisbane or the Gold Coast. Three, Current 5.5% rental yield indicates strong upside growth versus 2% rental yields in Sydney. Four, $1.1 billion rail link infrastructure spend is an underlying catalyst for future growth, especially at a buy-in price of low $300,000. Five, one-minute walk to the beach offers a wonderful lifestyle for both renters and owner-occupiers. And six... 10 minutes to the newly extended Westfield at North Lakes offers a shopping extravaganza. I can see you getting out your wallets now. You're on the edge of your seat going, where is Baylife? Let me invest now for just $30,000. Well, of course, it's in Deception Bay. 
on the Sunshine Coast. So if we go through and look at how the community assists in this 5.5% rental yield. Okay, number one, talking about record low rental vacancies of 1%. Well, of course, that doesn't measure all of the speculative vacancies that are being held by other property investors just looking for capital gains. So that number is a little bit rubbery. We'd probably say it'd be closer to 4%. Employment is strong. Sure, that's happening. Current rental yield of 5.5%. So that really is saying that the rents you can earn in Deception Bay relative to the price you pay for the property are, are pretty good compared to the incredible bubble in Sydney where rents can nowhere near justify the uh, prices being paid. And that's always a strong indicator of a bubble mentality when rents are just nowhere near justifying the prices paid. Now, number four, let's have a listen to this. $1.1 billion rail link infrastructure spend. Ah, well, who's funding that? All the other taxpayers in Queensland. Who's getting the benefits? Ah, those uh, owning property in Deception Bay and others along that rail link corridor. Uh-huh. Is that fair? Should we not have a fairer system of sharing these increases in location, location? Number five, a one-minute walk to the beach. Well, of course, there you have... Uh, Nature's bounty privatised and, and boxed up and sold off to the highest bidder. Who really should deserve that profit? Those lucky people uh, with the view? Or should it be shared amongst all of us? And then Westfield at North Lakes. Well, a shopping extravaganza. Yeah, okay, but Westfield are uh, not only some of the most prominent tax dodgers in Australia, but they also are some of the most aggressive litigators when it comes to land valuations and the resultant council rates they pay to have street cleaners uh, doing their work and uh, potholes filled up in the area. Well, of course, Westfield, that should no, not apply. So uh, it's just a little insight into uh, what happens in the world of real estate and how we on The Renegade Economist hopefully help you make sense of that because it's nearly every second story at the moment is something to do with the core concepts we're discussing here on The Renegade Economist. Now up to show number 482. So. One of the big stories has been that 1% vacancy tax and our concern in it after now having spent a little bit of time uh, looking at it. Uh, my quote on page three of the Australian Financial Review was our concern that the 1% vacancy tax is valued on the capital improved valuations. So this is your local council rates and the fact we have a, a rating system in place that whenever you put on solar panels, you renovate, put in a water tank, do anything to make your house look better and be more amenable, well, your council rating goes up and we think that is grossly unfair. We should all be encouraged to uh, build our houses uh, to whatever extent we like as long as it's within planning regulations 
But with the CIV, it gives this reverse incentive that for the bedrock of affordable housing, the uh, uh, weatherboard home, uh, probably 30-odd years uh, old these days, well, for an investor with a seven-year seven year investment window planned out, they're probably going to say, look, we can save some 20 to 30% off our rates over the next seven years. So uh, why don't we, we know we're already going to knock the house down and uh, the capital gains at the moment are some 50, 60 grand a year. It's about three times more than we can get for renting it out. We own another 10 properties, so you know, let's just knock this one down. It's not really going to make much difference. Well, by the time you have one in five investors doing that sort of behavior, that's where you get these pressures that we have some 24,000 demonstrably unoccupied homes in Melbourne. When you add a 50-litre threshold onto that with the fact that leaking taps can leak some 29 litres a day and uh, a couple of flushes of the loo and a bit of water to cook and, and wash up and so forth and, and you've blown your 50 litres a day, we feel that probably 82,000 vacant homes is a conservative measure. And the big problem with that measure is that it doesn't actually quantify the number of land banks that are held out on the sprawl. You've heard uh, the story that Melbourne's uh, sprawl by the size of Canberra. Well, I'm looking forward to getting you the exact comparison on just how big we've uh, sprawled this year. But uh, the point is that most developers have uh, a pretty tight rein on things and they don't turn the water meters on until the point of contract. And so when someone moves in, it basically means that uh, uh, that property is never counted as a vacancy. But a couple of years ago, down in uh, Frankston North, there was a developer there who didn't get the memo from the property council. And uh, there was some 64% of that development vacant and blew out the figures hugely down there. And got me thinking, what can we do to actually get these land banks on our vacancy measure? So bear with me, listeners, as uh, we traverse through all sorts of tricks to try and uh, unfurl that sort of information because we estimate it could be up to 300,000 land banks on the sprawl of Melbourne. Add that to the 80,000 and it becomes a uh, cacophony of laughter every time the Assistant Housing Minister or uh, the Federal Treasurer, ScoMo, says uh, it's all about the supply-side pressures. Well when there's just so much easy money to be had and it's so easy to buy off a minister with a $10,000 lunch here or there. It's a great return on investment for those sort of people. But talking about Scott Morrison, I was uh, rather surprised to see him uh, on page three of the AFR yesterday saying uh, how he encouraged states to follow the lead of South Australia and Victoria in imposing a tax on latent stock or so-called land banking, in which an investment property sits vacant. And Morrison says, if there's an investor holding property they're not leasing, they would face a higher tax burden. We need all the stock that's out there to be on the market. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Is it, reading between the lines, uh, he's very supportive of any tax measure that the states are uh, are responsible for but when it comes to changing 
negative gearing or the capital gains tax discount. He'll come up with any sort of solution he can to try and uh, uh, sidestep that. And this week, or today even, our good friends at macrobusiness.com.au. Make sure you check out their website if you really want to see what's happening uh, within uh, the Australian economic space. They had an article out talking about some of the pressures going on uh, regarding uh, the latest thought bubble from the Liberal Party, and it's regarding inclusionary zoning, which many in the affordable housing sector support. I still have some of my doubts about it, and uh, some of the reasons for that are lined up by Leith Van Onselen, who wrote... uh, because basically inclusionary zoning saying, look, we need 10% of every new development to have affordable housing included. Well, the Liberal Party has gone further and said this should be for key workers. So Leith says, providing these so-called affordable homes to certain valued professions, such as teachers, nurses and police, while excluding other low-income workers, such as cleaners, hospitality staff and retail staff, is also a form of economic apartheid it would effectively create two classes of working class those that are worthy and those that are unworthy it would be nice if the coalition for once acknowledged that housing is not just a supply side issue the assistant cities minister angus taylor claimed that sydney's housing supply has not kept pace with population growth but failed to admit that the major cause is the federal government's mass immigration program which for the past 14 years has run at levels far above historical norms and in fact is 2.5 times the OECD average. This mass immigration has seen Sydney's population balloon by around 800,000 over the past 12 years and under current immigration settings Sydney's population is projected to balloon by 80,000 people per year over the next 20 years. That's equivalent to adding four and a half Canberras to Sydney. So, you know me, listeners, I have fought against this population scaremongering for a long time. But when you see figures like that, you have to start to ask, what can we do to to rebalance things and, and to reduce those pressures. And I suppose the first thing we do is stop having wars in the Middle East, uh, uh, driving for these uh, oil rents, this cheap oil money, which again is not taxed at anywhere near the level it should. So allowing that free source of money there for insiders to claim, uh, Halliburton, KBR, Carlyle Group, you name it, they're all in there. Uh, snouts at the trough uh, having a great old time and uh, our view here on the renegade economist is look the first line for proactive defense is having high resource rents having a high resource rental charge on the mining sector is crucial so before i get onto that i just want to uh, delve back into uh, this populist type argument about the uh, Uh, which is summed up in uh, an article regarding foreign investment in the Australian Financial Review, the xenophobic twist in numbers on foreign property buyers. And the big headlines in uh, Sydney, the New South Wales Opposition Party, were saying, look, 11% of residential property buyers in New South Wales are foreign citizens. But uh, 
Of course, uh, they they looked a bit deeper into that. They found that of the 11%, supposedly a third were Chinese. That's enough to get the tabloids excited. Uh, but the problem was that uh, the 11% includes homes purchased jointly by Australian and foreign citizens or by dual citizens. Take them out and the share of foreign citizens falls to 8%. The vast majority of these foreign citizens are not actually the absentee Chinese landlords of tabloid horror. They are permanent residents of Australia who are making a long-term home here under Australia's migration program. The New South Wales government says that only about 1.5% of buyers pay the property surcharge. Now, this one got me thinking, guys. That is because people who have, resi- who have been resident in Australia for over 200 days in the previous year do not pay the tax. But there's a caveat. 10% of buyers are still not providing information on citizenship and 20% uh, uh, don't provide that information on where their tax residence is either. So there's more to be unfurled there. But, uh, uh, yeah, I kind of think that a lot of uh, recent students become recent migrants who uh, are very diligent in acting as property buyers for international family interests. And as I've said before on the show, with the... Um, what is it, the the doubling of the stamp duty on foreign investors from uh, 35 to 7% and basically upping the land tax to 1.5% for foreign investors. Uh, that's the surcharge added on what, what they already should be paying. That uh, would be very interesting to see the data on how many recent citizens have uh, developed huge property portfolios. And that's uh, something that uh, Transparency International has recently uh, come out with in the UK looking at uh, the sort of workarounds that well-heeled families are coming out with in terms of uh, avoiding some of these pressures on them buying up our communities. So for me, a much fairer system would be to have a, a 1% land tax that channels the property bubble away from the banking system and towards giving us all income tax cuts. Because you know, even if it is 11% uh, of foreigners buying our property, that still allows for close to 40% of domestic investors crowding out legitimate homeowners. And that's what we should be concentrating on, the fact that there's four times more greater influence on the property market by domestic investors, whether that is single mums and dads, uh, uh, individuals, or the, the growing curse of uh, superannuation companies and private equity firms uh, corporatizing not only the uh, uh, mortgage market, but also the rental market. All right, let's have a listen to uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on Housing talking about her financialization of housing report on uh, AM radio last Monday. We're seeing unprecedented uh, growth in, in capital and capital flow. And this is not just wealthy individuals. This is also corporations, you know, wanting to park money and 
it's not just a safe place for money to be held. It's also a place for wealth to be gained, you know, so it's an investment, basically. I am seeing this um, in many cities across the world, including in a couple of cities in Australia, for sure, Sydney uh, being number one, it is considered what we call a hedge city, and Melbourne being another, uh, where you're just seeing prices escalating and people being un- unable to live in those cities. You know, you have to ask yourself, if your landlord is a corporate shell company, or if your landlord is a bondholder, or you know, a a kind of unknown corporate entity, what does that do to community? And what does that do to you as a resident in that community? Also, um, this is a phenomenon certainly you're seeing in Australia. And I I did see a really excellent report coming out of Melbourne, where you have what we call a vacant home problem. And that's generally where investors, domestic and uh, international investors, park money into housing and residential uh, units Uh, but don't actually live there and have really no intention of living there. And you can, again, ask yourself, well, what's the impact on community? We have seen and we have heard of a kind of ghost-like atmosphere in some areas of certain cities. I've, I've heard about that in London, where, you know, the local school closes down because there just simply aren't enough children living in the neighborhood anymore because of all these vacant homes. Or I hear about pubs closing and restaurants closing and services closing in certain neighborhoods, because though there's plenty of housing there, there's actually no one living there. And that was uh, Leila Faha, the UN Special Rapporteur, Uh, talking about uh, the incredible effect on communities of this prioritization of investors over home, what do we call them, home home livers? No, uh, homeowners, home renters. And one of the classic statements in that uh, juicy report, uh, financialized housing markets create and thrive on gentrification and the appropriation of public value for private wealth. So that fairly well sums up the pressures we've been talking about here on The Renegade Economist for uh, near on nine and a half years. And uh, it's good to see that uh, uh, that is uh, spreading around the world, those sort of deeper economic concepts. Because my, oh my, do we need it when we see what happened in the West Australian election? I can't believe that Brendan Grills, uh, the, the National Party leader who stood up for the everyday person's right to a share in the Commonwealth, well, the miners did him over, didn't they? They spent some $5 million to unseat him at uh, what, what uh, we're looking at, some $250 per voter. So uh, that's tax-deductible dis- tax money spent by foreign-owned corporations to corrupt a first-world democracy, writes David Collier on the prosper.org.au website today as uh, Matthew Stevens at the AFR uh, tries to uh, spin some of the concern in South Australia about their energy crisis there uh, by saying, uh, why don't we divert oil and gas royalties to landholders? Well, why don't we share those royalties amongst all of us? Thank you very much. It's not just the privileged landowners who deserve a share of those royalties. We all do. Let's not diverted from uh, these huge international interests to uh, a a lucky landowner who struck it uh, rich. 
let's ensure that everyone gets a share of this uh, because uh, it's it's really a battle between rent seekers that are playing out there and to uh, to see that uh, uh, Elon Musk at Tesla uh, with uh, Mike Cannon Brooks uh, from uh, Australia, one of our startup entrepreneurs, uh, saying they can solve the energy crisis uh, with a, a battery rollout uh, within the next hundred days was certainly refreshing, and I just wish that our tax incentives were going towards that sort of entrepreneurial thinking rather than than these uh, snouts in the trough who are, are just trying to claim this easy money for themselves. Because it's it's getting a little bit tiresome, isn't it? And one of the other things that's happening over in South Australia is they're trying to privatise their land titles office. The legislation is uh, uh, about done. It seems like it's a foregone conclusion, but still we write to their MPs, we write to our members in probably the nation's most unsexiest uh, NGO-type campaign, saving a land titles office. What does that actually... Who cares about this? It's what most people will be saying. But in our letter to the MPs, uh, we write, registering who holds which parcel of land matters for individual financial protection and for lenders like banks. Privatisation threatens transparency. Making land titles opaque and therefore more risky will impose staggering costs on the victims of fraud and upon lenders. But we see a murkier agenda behind this. What if the promoters of this change of privatising the land titles office actually wanted to hide who owns the land? This is the case in Scotland, where despite strenuous efforts that began with the Registration Act of 1617 and accompanying a register of Sassines, the owners of only 26% of the Scottish land have ever been identified. And this seems to be one of the latest diktats coming out of uh, Davos and so forth, is to privatise the land titles office so we can jack up the cost of uh, housing affordability researchers so we will have no idea which foreigners own our property because uh, they will continue to increase the costs. Uh, it already is expensive enough for research bodies like us to keep an eye on what's happening, but... Uh, <sighs> they, they've got more in store for us, haven't they? Well, last week uh, for International Women's Day, we had my lovely wife, Raina Fahey from RadicalCrossStitch.com uh, interview Juanita McLaren, who uh, has now taken up a role at The Good Shepherd. And uh, Good Shepherd have been kind enough to transcribe last weekend's uh, a fantastic conversation as Juanita took us through some of the pressures on her as a single mum, uh, studying with three young boys, trying to find a house. And uh, she got uh, an email this week from uh, one of the rejectors uh, saying, sorry, uh, we couldn't lease out the property for you. We wanted a family with less kids and two income earners. So there she was thinking, God, what do I do? Do I get rid of one of my kids? How do I find a place? She basically was down to about a week to go until uh, uh, she was going to be uh, moved on after getting an extension from a landlord. But uh, I've heard today that luckily Juanita has a new apartment. Thankfully for that uh, has, has occurred because I, I just feel for so many people out there who are struggling to make ends meet and and uh, somehow justifying paying 400 to 500 bucks a week 
for somewhere to live. I was talking to Michael Hudson during the week and he was just absolutely gobsmacked that uh, properties uh, over near where I live uh, are selling for $600,000, $700,000. It's just off the Richter scale and uh, the banks are loving it, the insiders are loving it. How do we actually share this money with the community? And uh, that's where we hark back to Australia's first federal taxation office before the Australian tax office was established way back then the wise old heads running Australia knew that international interests uh, the squadocracy the the aristocrats they were all coming to buy up the best land in Australia so we need to defend it with a federal land tax office well somehow some way we're going to keep uh, flying this fa- flag so that we can show just how much better off we would be if uh, we did share the rents that way. Great to see that a $9 million billion, no, I think it was $9 million worth of social impact bonds sold out really quickly today ahead of time. So uh, we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. But uh, yeah, I think we better wind up there. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. <laughs> In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available.